0: Hey, you guys, you're listening to episode 29 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we're speaking with Janine Maxwell, co founder of Heart for Africa. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. My name is Keelan Hobelman and I'm here with my co-host and brother Cody. On today's episode, we are joined by Janine Maxwell, co-founder of Heart for Africa. Janine began her professional career in marketing, starting her own company in Canada at a young age, and she quickly found success in the business world and rose to be one of the first female CEOs of a major marketing company with all the status and lifestyle that came with it. However, God had a radically different purpose for her life. After a series of life-changing events, God led Janine to abruptly shut down her successful company in order to better hear his voice in her life. And that initial step of faith allowed Janine and her husband Ian to eventually found Heart for Africa, a faith-based humanitarian aid organization. Unlike a number of organizations we've spoken to which try to tackle a specific problem across multiple regions and people groups, Heart for Africa is completely dedicated to systematically and sustainably serving people. In Eswatini, they use the acronym HOPE, to define their mission addressing hunger, orphans, poverty, and education through a 2,500-acre land development project. Janine has an incredible personal story as well as some fantastic insight on sustainability and faith-based humanitarian aid that you won't want to miss, so stay tuned. Before we get started, do you ever wish you could find more people who are passionate about generosity, serving their communities, and advancing the gospel? Well, check out our Facebook group where you can join the discussion and hear what others have experienced in their journeys. You don't need to have a financial finish line to join. All you need is a passion for glorifying Christ with whatever God has given you to manage. Look for the link in the show notes to learn more. And with that, let's get to our interview.
1: So we are joined today by Janine Maxwell. Janine, we are so excited to be talking to you today. We really appreciate you making some time to share a little bit more about yourself and Heart for Africa today.
2: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
1: So I was hoping you could give us a little bit of context on who you are, where you come from, what you did before you got involved with Heart for Africa.
2: Sure. I'm Canadian and I grew up in Northern Ontario and then ended up actually, I went to university down in, uh, in Springfield, Missouri at Evangel. So a lot of, maybe there'd be some people listening who know Evangel. But I went back and started a marketing company. I started working with someone else, and then at 24, thought, you know, how hard could it be to start a marketing agency? So, naivete is a wonderful thing. And so, you know, contacted my first client, which was Pepsi, and then grew my business from there to be one of the mar- largest marketing agencies in Canada. And naivete, definitely working on my side at the time. <laughs> and, you know, I was working towards the Canadian dream, the you know, the house, the car, the expensive holidays and all of the things that one longs for, you know, I had a great husband and two kids and, and life was good. My company was called Onyx Marketing Group and probably one of only a, two or three women globally who owned a marketing agency at that time. It was in 1988 and that from there forward. And so I was riding high and exciting, you know, I traveled all over the world and had an office in London and I worked in Hungary and everything was good until everything wasn't good. <laughs> So we're coming up on twenty year, the twenty year anniversary of September eleventh. And twenty years ago on September eleventh is when my life really changed, and the life of my family. I was in New York City that day at a marketing to kids conference, and we were staying in a hotel on top of Grand Central Station. So as the plane started to crash into the buildings, the buildings were falling. We ended up, my colleagues and I ended up in the in the lobby bar, just watching on TV what was going on. And then we were evacuated by police gunfire, as they were driving down the street, evacuating, evacuating. It was rumored that there was a bomb in Grand Central Station, so we started running. And my husband was on an American Airlines flight to Chicago, and our young children were back at home on the other side of the Canadian border. And you know, the whole world changed that day. Everyone who was alive and old enough to remember knows where they were that day and what they were doing. And, you know, a couple of Canadians on the wrong side of the border, wrong place, wrong time. And our story wasn't nearly as bad as, you know, so many people who lost their lives and loved ones that day, but it really sent me on the journey of the meaning of life. You know, what am I doing? I had a great business. I had a great family and I love Jesus. You know, I was a Christian, But as you can hear the order that I put that in, Jesus was third. I mean, he was the top three, you know, (laughs) it's got to be something, but that's, he's a very jealous God and that's not the way he wanted it. So when I got back home, I really fell into a depression wondering why did I live? Why did so many others die? And what is the meaning of life? You know, why am I here? What am I doing? So that was, that was before.
0: So what happened after that? Where did you go from there?
2: Well, I crawled into bed and started reading Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. It was new out then. And I got to either chapter two or chapter three, and it talked about you are not an accident. And I thought, you know, well, I don't know who this Rick Warren guy is, but he doesn't know my story because I know that my mother, you know, got knocked up in the backseat of a car when she was 15 years old. And I was absolutely an accident. (laughs) In fact, you know, she was kicked out of her home. She was an embarrassment to the family. It was 1963. She was sent away to a home for unwed mothers, 400 miles from the little town in Northern Ontario that she was born and raised in. And I was very much an accident. And I was okay with that because I knew that, you know, God's the only one who can make a baby. And the home, the adopted home that I had been placed in always told me I was chosen. I was the one that, you know, God, they were Christians and God chose me and put me in their home. And so I had a very good adoptive experience and knew that I was chosen in their home. But, but this guy, Rick Warren, obviously didn't know that. Well, then he went on and started listing scriptures that supported the idea that there are no accidents in God's world and that he is the only one who can make a child. And so it really made me start to think, well, what am I doing with my life then? Because I know I hadn't met my birth mother, but I did know her story. Through other sets of circumstances, and I knew that she had been not only traumatized, but she was embarrassed. And as I said, she was kicked out of the house. And so I thought, okay, Lord, if I was not an accident, and this poor young girl suffered the way she did, and the family suffered the way they did, then I better not screw this up. You know, a lot of people have gone through a lot of pain and suffering for me to be here. So I better, I better pull it together and figure out why I'm here. And that really sent me on the journey for the meaning of life. You know, why am I here? And why, you know, was I placed in that family? And why do I have the successful business and the the house and the car and the money and the bank account? And what am I doing with it all? And what am I supposed to be doing with it? That was really that turning point of, I have all this, and now what am I supposed to do with it? Which is kind of the topic of your podcast.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So how'd you go about answering that question?
2: Well, I bumped into an old friend who was doing ministry work in Africa and I sort of talked him into taking me with he and his wife. I just thought it'd be a really great idea because he was going there and he was, they were filming street kids in Zambia and Kenya and I didn't know what a street kid was, didn't know much about that. So I convinced him to let me go with him and ended up on the downtown Lusaka, Zambia in 2003 in the search for the meaning of life. And met all these children who'd been living on the streets for years, you know, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six years old. And they were living wrapped up as piles of garbage on the street. And you know, the little ones, the two and three-year-olds, would be the ones stuffed into garbage cans to pull out the garbage and the and you know, the four or five, six year olds were the one they were raped every night by the older boys, and this was just their way of life. And I I at that moment thought, aha, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to solve this. I am going to use my wealth and use my influence to build a home. I'll build an orphanage for these boys and we'll rescue them off the street because the, or- the organization that we were there with, that's what they do. That will be great. I'll go home and, again, use my wealth and my influence and we'll build a home and we can get these boys off the street and then I can get back to work. And that will be the meaning of my life. And our host that night, I mean, this was the first night I was in Africa and I've said lots of stupid things since then, and but hopefully <laughs> Hopefully I've slowed (laughs) down on the stupid comments and I live there now. But my host at the time said, you know, that's just a really great idea and all, but there's 75,000 children living on the streets of Lusaka tonight and just that night. And we went on to Nairobi, Kenya. And at that night there were 500,000 children living on the streets of Nairobi, Kenya and every city had a crazy number. And this was, you know, as the AIDS pandemic, I'm not sure whether we've peaked yet or not. It's really hard to tell, but that was, you know, in the, in, the, in the middle of the AIDS pandemic and the numbers were staggering. And, you know, it was expected by 2010 that there would be tens of thousands of AIDS orphans. And I knew at that moment that I was supposed to do something that God was calling me to do something to help them.
3: And I would meet these young girls that first trip. I'd meet these young girls who were teenagers and they had no parents. They would have sex for food. They would get STDs, they might get HIV, but they'd also get pregnant. And they didn't know what to do. 13, 14, 15 years old, and when it came time to give birth, they might go to a pet latrine or an outhouse and have give birth in the toilet. Or they might just give birth on the side of the road. And They put them in plastic bags, and they would take me to what looked like a dam in a river, and all these plastic, like a a Kroger's bag, a Publix bag, and just this pile of bags, and that's where the girls dumped their babies, because they didn't know what to do with them. And there were no, no adults around to answer the questions. And I knew. At that point, I'm thinking, I belong to a good church. I'm a follower of Jesus. And how did I not know this was happening? And how could this be happening in this world? How could God let this happen? And I knew I couldn't go back to the boardroom in the capacity that I was. I knew that I had to serve in Africa. So I went back home and my life was wrecked. My husband thought I was crazy
2: and I just knew we had to, you know, sell my business. So that was sort of an interesting thing because God, you know, as I prayed about it, he told me to close my business and, you know, it was a big, it was a successful company and God told me to close it. And I, explained to God that it would be better if I sold my business because then I would have more money to give him, (laughs) which, you know, (laughs) in hindsight was ridiculous because it's all his money. But I thought that that seemed like a reasonable idea. And would there be life after business? You know, what happens after you close your business or you sell your business? And at the time, what he's, what I felt him saying is if I sold the business, and made however much money from that. I would have to work for someone else for three years. There's a you know, there'd be a three-year workout, and the children were dying.
3: The the need was immediate. And yes, the need would be there in three years, but the need was immediate, and he was calling me immediately. So we closed the business. And my husband worked there. We had all of our eggs in one basket. You know, our house
2: was paid off. We had you know we're Canadian. So we, we do things a little bit differently with housing. You know, It's the first thing you do in Canada when you buy a house to try to pay it off. So we were debt free, which was a big deal. But we didn't have a lot of money in the bank because I was, you know, 38, 40. I mean, I had lots of time to continue making money. But that's what he had us do was close the business and then wait for what he wanted us to do next. And that led us to through a strange, long set of circumstances that I won't go into today, but starting this organization called Heart for Africa.
1: Well, Janine, that is, frankly, hard to hear. And I can't imagine what it would be like to actually visit, see, and experience and talk to these people who are living in those conditions. And that is just their life. And it's really impossible to imagine returning to life unchanged after having that experience on your trip. And before we jump into the actual founding of Heart for Africa, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about how being debt free and how having that perspective change allowed you to so easily come to this conclusion of essentially walking away from this opportunity to just make a bunch of money and, and continue living your great lifestyle the way it was.
2: Well, I won't speak for all Canadians, but it really is a thing in Canada's that when you buy a house, your number one goal is to pay off your house. And you sort of forego, again, not everyone, but certainly my parents' generation and, and our generation, you forego all the, the boats and the cottages and everything else until you pay your house off. So I'll say I was raised in a manner that that was a high priority. And the reason that they do that is then you do have that freedom. Or if you do lose your job, or you know if there is a medical emergency or something that you need, you have that margin. The house The house piece gives you the margin financially but for us quite unexpectedly what it allowed us to do was have the freedom that we didn't have to worry about a mortgage we didn't have to worry about car payments so when it came to being obedient to god and doing something that just made no sense to anyone and and it wasn't one of those things that i mean i talked to my parents about it and my mom who's a strong believer said you need to do what god has told you to do my father said well you'll just be just means you're unemployed You know, so everyone has a different perspective. Most of the people we spoke to, and there weren't many, we weren't seeking counsel on this, I will say, because God was very clear to us that this is what we were to do. And I think that that's really important. If you hear from God, however he speaks to you, to go and run that past a bunch of people is a very dangerous thing to do because it would have been very, very easy to talk us out of. Closing the business? Because it was a train wreck. I mean I had to go into the you know the president of Bonavista Home Video and tell him that I'm closing the business. Well to do what? Not sure. You know, yeah, why aren't sure. you selling it? Or or and I'm taking in my competitor, like to the president of Kellogg's, who we have a three year contract with, and I'm explaining trying to explain to him that, you know, yes, we won your business, but I'd like my competitor to manage your account from now on because I'm going to close the business. Well, to do what? And at that point, I certainly didn't want to bring Jesus into it, because that would have made me sound even crazier. So it was more like, well, you know, I've been to Africa a few times, and I really think I want to help. And I really feel there's this urgency to it, but did not bring Jesus into it in my corporate conversations. (laughs) But I also didn't have to, because we had that financial freedom to be able to do that. And then in the end, the Lord asked us to move to Alpharetta, Georgia, and that was a big, big move because we, you know, I given him my children, I given him my husband, I given him my business and now he wanted us to move. And it was like, I'm sorry, you want my house too? Like my house that I designed that house that I got perfect, the the perfect house, I gave you my children and my husband and you want my house? And, you know, but I realized that that was all wrapped up in my identity and who I was. And and that was a big part of my business as well. That was who I was. And I was Janine Maxwell, one of the only women in the world. You know, I said it earlier, one of the only women in the world who owned a marketing company. I was 24 years old when I started it. I mean, all of these things were part of my identity of greatness. (laughs) But it wasn't, you know, that wasn't what the Lord was looking for. But he certainly didn't waste it.
0: Yeah. Wow. What an incredible story and testimony. I do want to hear about Heart for Africa and get into some of those details. Just before we jump to that, I wanted to get your perspective. This is something that I've kind of struggled with on my own over the past number of years about the whole idea of short-term mission trips or, you know, short trips like that. And There was a period where I was really hesitant about trips like that because I felt like, you know, if I was going to go on a short term trip, I'd probably have to spend a couple thousand dollars to go on the trip. And then, you know, realistically in a week or two, I wouldn't have that much impact. And then I'd be back home and I could have had so much more impact spending that money. Or giving it, you know, to an organization that was doing work already. And in more recent years, I've kind of really flipped my perspective on that because of exactly what you're kind of sharing and that it's not really so much about the impact that we might have on a short trip like that, but really about the radical deep heart change that god can accomplish in us through relationships and being face to face with the rest of the world and being outside of our little bubble and i'd love to just hear briefly about your thoughts on that
2: Mm -hmm. it's a really good question because i've had a lot of people we as heart for africa have had more than seven thousand people travel with us on 11 day service trips so i've had this question asked a lot I think getting out of your, I'll speak, this is an American podcast, so I'll speak specifically, I'll use American. I think so many Americans need to get out of the bubble that they live in, whether they're ultra rich, a little bit rich, not rich, middle class. They need to get out of the reality of what's happening here and see what's happening in the rest of the world. And you can't do that without going. I'll also say that most people who would pay for the trip themselves, let's say it's a $3,000 mission trip are unlikely to write a check for $3,000 in lieu of going. They just wouldn't give to that charity. They might give to something else. The other thing is most people who traveled with us, maybe 80% of them, would have to raise support to travel. So they might have only put in $500 towards their own trip, and then they've invited their friends and family to support them so that they can go on that life-changing trip. So it doesn't equate to the $3,000 because those people wouldn't have given the money if it wasn't for that loved one who wants to go and travel. I'm very, very against poverty tourism. That bothers me very much. And we take teams. We're very, very careful. I'm hypersensitive to it. In fact, that we're not going to tour the slums or we're not going to tour the poor people and, you know, go and just see the mud hut. So we have to design our trips very intentionally to make sure that they are part of a service that they, you know, where we are in Eswatini, if we go and visit an old woman in a home, it's to support her, it's to show her that she's loved, it's to show that we as her neighbor care for her, that people are praying for her, but it's not poverty tourism. And and there's a very fine line between those two things. But I think the people, you know, there are people who go every year and love traveling every year to their favorite, you know, on their favorite mission trip. And, you know, I think maybe they could, skip a year or two and donate the money. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: It's tricky. But if you don't see it for yourself and if you don't go with an open heart to it, you're right. There's nothing, everybody wants to go and make a difference. They all want to add value. But unless you're an ENT or a nurse or a teacher or someone with a specific skill set, that's not likely to happen on a short-term trip. But your life can be changed dramatically on a short-term trip and then go back and then spread the word. Tell them what's happening. Tell them who I saw living on that street. You know, I've met the girls that are 13 having the babies. And because of my birth story, I'm able to share with them or I'm able to share with the grandmother that, you know, this young girl is pregnant and it may be a, because she was raped. In most cases, it's because she was raped or there's incest. And I'm I able to share my story and say, you know what? When my mother was 15 years old, she got pregnant. She gave birth to me, but God has a plan for my life. And because of that, I'm standing here talking to you, and I can help you. I can help your granddaughter. I can help your great-granddaughter because that baby in her belly was made by God, and God has a plan for that baby's life. And so it's a, it's a direct link back to my start, which I think is pretty cool.
0: Absolutely. So you close down your business, and you moved down to Georgia, how did you get to the point of Heart for Africa and, and the work that you guys have been doing there?
2: Well, when while I still had my company, I started something called Hopes and Dreams Team. And so it was sort of like starting a charity, but it wasn't a charity. I didn't want to go to all the work of doing that because I thought, you know, why reinvent the wheel? Why not just come alongside and support existing charities? So the orphanages that I went to in Zambia, the one that I went to in Kenya, it would make sense for me to just raise money through my... Chapter sort of of hopes and dreams team, and then send the money to them through a charity in Canada. And then that became more complicated because accountability, where does the money go? How I can't hold anyone accountable for that money because yes, I'm the one raising it, but I'm not the official charity. There's no governance around. And I'm very, very intentional and strict as maybe a word about if someone gives me a dollar, I'm going to use that dollar to the very best of my abilities. I understand what it takes to make a dollar and I'm not going to waste any of it. I couldn't control that narrative. I could say that to my donors, but I wasn't the one receiving the funds and then transferring them to Africa. And then I would see things happening in Africa that, you know, things weren't being spent the way they were supposed to be spent or they specifically, they weren't being spent for the things that I had told my donors that I was raising money for. And that really, well, that was just unacceptable to me. So then we're like, okay, let's let's start our own organization. So we started Heart for Africa with the intention of still coming alongside children's homes. So we wanted to help. We were working in South Africa. We were working in Malawi, in Kenya, and in Swaziland. And coming alongside orphanages, because that's really where my heart was, and to help them became self-sufficient and help them not have to depend on donors. I hate asking for money. I'm a business person. I would rather sell you something. And we'll talk about our artisans in in a little bit. But I don't want to have to ask for money. But So we wanted to help them become self-sustainable. But what we realized along the journey is not everybody's a business person. Not everybody's an entrepreneur. And not all the homes, in fact, perhaps none of the homes that we were supporting, really were interested in self-sustainability. They were focused on raising the children, which was great, but they just didn't know how to, they would prefer that someone fundraise for them, send them the money, and then they would use the funds. And that just didn't work for me. And, you know, different homes have different ideas, and it's their home, so I don't have the right to tell them how to run their home. But, you know, there was a point, we had lots of disagreements. People have disagreements, right? But there was a home in Kenya that we were supporting that after, six months of us discussing with them the fact that we really strongly disagreed with having a child stripped naked at the front of the classroom and beaten because they weren't doing well in school, we had to part ways because we just don't agree with that. And they insisted that that was the best way to do it. And, and, you know, we, we tried all sorts of ways to discuss it and we couldn't. And so we realized that I think we're going to have to do this a different way And it may mean that we're going to have to do it our way and sort of, and invent a new wheel that was through several years of us working with our organization, Heart for Africa, coming alongside these homes. And then Ian, my husband was really frustrated, actually, you know, he's, he's a problem solver, he's an operations guy. And it just seemed like we were putting money in, putting money in, but there was no, there was no ROI. (laughs) ROI was not good. And, And the accountability wasn't there. So one day he came to me and said, I think God has given me a vision. And he never says that. I mean, he's not that guy. And I said, okay, what's the vision? He said, well, I think we should buy a piece of land in Swaziland. And I said, okay, what are we going to do with the land? Because we know nothing about land development. He said, well, I think that we could grow food. And his idea was that we would run the business side and we would take the proceeds and then donate it to these orphanages. So if they can't do it, we can do it. Let's use our skill set to support them. So we're going to grow food. We're going to grow vegetables. And I said, you don't even eat vegetables. Like, what do you know about that? (laughs) And he goes, well, no, but and we'll have dairy. Like we're going to have dairy cows. I said, you have never seen a dairy cow in your life. You are a city dude. And he's like, And we'll have children because he knows children in my heart. He goes, and we'll have, there'll be orphans there. There'll be children. Maybe we'll have our own children, orphans living there. Maybe it won't just all be to support others. And I'm like, you're crazy. Like, this makes no sense. Fast forward, he found a piece of land that was 2,500 acres. It was a million US dollars. We were a million dollars short of a million US dollars to buy virgin land in Africa. And we met a man in Alpharetta, Georgia who, in the first meeting with him, he describes to us a piece of land that God has shown him, and it has cows, and it has vegetables, and there are children living on the land. I start to cry. I mean, it was the Holy Spirit just descended into the room, and my husband does the timeout sign to this very ultra-rich, I think you would call him, man, and said, I need to tell you something, because we hadn't told anyone about this land, because I was sort of opposed to it. And so he tells this guy, there's this piece of land. We have this vision too. And the man says, well, how much is the land? He says, it's a million dollars. And the guy goes, well, a million dollars really isn't that much money. (laughs) Well, we were, again, a million dollars shy of a million dollars. And so after about two weeks after that meeting, he committed personally to give us the million dollars for the land. And then the crash of 2008 happened. And he wrote the check on the Friday after the crash because he'd committed the funds. And that made no sense to anyone in his family or his circle. I won't say his family because his family are believers, but, you know, that wasn't really the best time to give a million bucks, except that the Lord told him to write a check for a million dollars, and he did. So we were able to take that million dollars, try to figure out how to buy virgin land in Africa that has no water, no roads, no electricity, no buildings, no nothing, and that became what we now call Project Canaan, the land of flowing with milk and honey, a place of hope. And we call that our home now. And we've lived on that land for nine years.
1: Well, Janine, that's a pretty incredible story that someone could walk into a meeting with a vision and a checkbook and help you and Ian essentially get this whole project started and funded. And it's really hard to imagine for me to be able to have that kind of impact, but it's just very impressive that God orchestrated that meeting and put you all in the same room and provided those visions so that Heart for Africa and Project Canaan could really get that boost that they needed. And actually earlier today, Keelan sent over this incredible drone flyover of the land as it sits, I think, this year. But for our listeners, could Mm -hmm. you just describe a little bit of what did you do with that land that you eventually purchased? Sure. Sure.
2: So since 2009, so we bought the land in 2009, and again, there was no water, no electricity, there was no river, there were no roads, it was just bush, I mean, African bush. So we started clearing the land, the first thing we built was the farm manager's building, and cleared land to get a crop in the ground. We felt it was really important to get that first crop in the ground, so we could have our first harvest, that first season, and tithe that first harvest. It was just something that the Lord was very specific and then we built a chapel with a beautiful thatch roof because we wanted to be able to show people who come on the property that we're not doing this because we're like superheroes or really good people or humanitarians. We're doing this because we believe in Jesus and he told us to. Simple as that. We didn't water. We're not, you know, super evangelistic. We're not Bible thumpers. We're not, you know, sometimes we're just, we're just normal human beings, but we had already taken the leap of faith and we didn't want to screw it up by having anybody think that it was us, you know, because, you know, I have a big ego I and struggle with that still. And that just, that would be really bad if all of a sudden we started taking credit for something that God was doing. So the chapel was really important for us to make a statement of faith. So since 2009, we have built 65 buildings. It is a really large piece of land. And because it's mountainous, we've only been able to build on the lower part of the land And so we have four pillars to our ministry, and it's hunger, orphans, poverty, and education. So under the Hunger Initiative, I can talk about our farm. And the farm started off as being the heartbeat of the property because we needed to grow food first. We have a 70% unemployment rate in Eswatini. You think about the height of the Great Depression, the U.S. was at 23%, 24%. We were at 70%, and that was before COVID. That was before businesses shut down. That was before civil unrest, when buildings were burnt, and government buildings were burnt, and grocery stores were burnt. So who knows what it is right now. So food was the most important thing. And 90, between 90 and 95% of all of the food consumed in Swaziland is imported from South Africa. So we had to grow food. So we had field crops. We put in a pretty sophisticated drip irrigation system. And keep in mind, I'm a marketer and he's an economist. So we had no expertise in any of this. But at the, the exact time we needed it, God sent the right person. You know, he sent the person who understand from Israel, who understands water and drip irrigation systems and pumping systems. And we had our pumps flown in from Italy. You know, who knew that this stuff, like we had no idea what we were doing, but God knew what he was doing. And we just, said, okay, sort of like he'd give us one page at a time. And it was pretty cool. Then we put in a greenhouse. So we have hydroponics, we have aquaponics. So we're growing fish and vegetables at the same time without soil. We have a big packing plant, which is like a giant refrigerator. So we can actually get ISO approved to export vegetables. We have our own dairy. So we produce all of the milk we need and whatever we don't use, we sell it back to Parmalat. We have 5,000 laying hens, We're in partnership with the International Egg Commission, which who knew there was an International Egg Commission? (laughs) And it it was funny, you know, I wrote, my first book was called It's Not Okay With Me, and I handed it to a man one day, and he, at the end of the one-hour conversation, said, you need to come and speak in Venice at the International Egg Commission Conference. And I said, "I have really? There's an International Egg Commission? (laughs) He goes, yes, and I have a speaking, I have a one hour to speak, and I'm going to give you my spot and I'll fly you there. And I was like, well, absolutely. I would love to go to Venice. I mean, you know, like that's how God works. That's how God works. So we have now have 5,000 laying hens that lay an egg every 26 hours, and you can't turn them off. It's every day comes out an egg. And so the combination of the farm and the the laying hens allow us to feed children out in the community. And so the hunger, the H is we feed now 4,500 children every single week, in the most remote areas of the country. And we partner with an organization here in the U.S. called Feed My Starving Children and Gleanings for the Hungry. And they ship us 40-foot containers of food. We get now, we start off with one a year. Now we get about six a year. So probably a million and a half meals. We distribute 1.6 million hard-boiled eggs to those same children that we feed. And so that's what the farm looks like in a nutshell. And that's our hunger initiative. Next is O. So that's the orphans. Those are the children that I talked about earlier in the podcast. And those are the children that are so near and dear to my heart that I wanted to help from the start. So we have a home for abandoned babies who are orphans. So they, they might be left in pit latrines. They might be left on the side of the road, put in a tree left in the hospital. I mean, they're just, we have a pandemic of abandoned babies in the country. And so if they're under the age of two and we get a call from social welfare or the police, then they will bring the child to us. We get a court order and they are placed with us. So as of today, my husband Ian and I are the legal guardians and mom and dad to 295 children under the age of 11. Our eldest is 11 and our youngest is five days old and her name is Liberty. So they call us Mage and babe, which is mom and dad, and they're no longer orphans. They now have a home, and they, like I, who was not raised by my biological parents, but they're being raised to know who Jesus is, they're, they're having their needs met, and they know that they were chosen. All of the same language that was used in my childhood is being used in their childhood. These are not abandoned children. They were chosen by God to be placed with us, and we will care for them until they're adults you know, the legal age is 18, but having just, I have a 25 and 27 year old. And I know that at 18, they weren't ready to leave the nest. So we want them to be set up for success, just as our biological children were. And we will work, whether that's them going to university, whether that's them working in the dairy barn or working in the aquaponics or working with chickens or being mechanics or whatever, that is our goal. And th- some of these children have HIV, they have TB, We have the most extreme set of circumstances with children who've come in with broken legs and broken arms, sexually abused, and they're under the age of two. And we have an expression here that we love them back to life. So last month, we had a little girl come to us, and we were told that she was seven months old, but she only weighed 11 pounds. When we finally got her health card, we have a nurse, we have two clinics there. We have a pediatric clinic, and then we have an adult clinic. When we got her health card and looked at her age, she was actually two and a half years old and she weighed 11 pounds. She had no muscle mass whatsoever. She couldn't weight bear. She couldn't sit. And so we have a, we have a crack team. We have, we're told that we have the best NICU in the country, and we don't have any of the equipment that a NICU has, but we love these children back to life and then they're with us and they start going to school. So that's the O as I said 295 we're building a housing to support six about 650 children but again they all come in under the age of 2 so then we can predict the future of for education and things like that I'll, and I'll come to that when I get to the E. The P is poverty. Our solution to poverty is employment. Employ people so that they can provide for their own family. We give out the mana packs and the food distribution to the children in the rural communities and because they need food. If they're four years old, they're six years old, they're eight year olds. The only other way for them to get food is to be in school. And of course, schools have been closed since the beginning of COVID in March 2020. Schools have not reopened yet. You know, they don't have electricity, they don't have online learning, and they're missing four days of meals a week. So we've really increased our feeding. And, you know, we've tried planting backyard gardens with them. We've tried planting gardens with the church to have them be more, you know, providing for themselves. They can't. They're kids. They just can't do it. But the people we employ on the farm absolutely can. So we employ over 320 people full-time on Project Canaan who then in turn are able to pay the school fees when school's in. They can pay for food. They can pay for clothes and that kind of thing. And, And that's really important to us is to be able to provide income. And it's not just income, it's pride, it's self-esteem. It's, you know, they're providing for their families. And so that's important. Within that, we have Kutsala Artisans, which is a big deal for us. It generated in 2019, across the whole farm, we generated 35% of our operating costs for the whole farm in 2019. And we're working towards that self-sustainability piece. So that's sustainability for operation costs. That's how we define it because everyone defines it differently. We will still raise money for capital costs when we need to build the next classroom. We need to build the next children's home. We just put in a solar power plant. So, you know, we would raise money to put in the solar power plant, but that will in turn reduce our operating costs. But by selling vegetables, by selling milk, And these Kutsala artisan products that you can find on our website, we have a whole Kutsala website and Christmas ornaments and things that helps us generate those operating costs. And the people earn their income. They're not paid by the piece. They're not paid on consignment when we sell it. They're paid their wage every month, and then they can go on and provide for their families. And that also includes, and this sort of leaps over to education, because we also have a carpentry shop. So what we want on Project Canaan is everything that's on the farm Needs to contribute to either generating income, reducing the cost of operating costs. So we may be spending money to have the dairy farm there, but it's reducing our overall cost for milk because we're not buying milk. And we give our kids a lot more milk than we ever would if we had to buy it in town. Plus, we make our own yogurt every single day. So we don't have to give probiotics when we're giving antibiotics we make our own butter. Hopefully soon we'll be making our own cheese. We can make our own mayo with the eggs. So, I mean, it's, it's a pretty cool full circle thing, but we're, we still are a long way to self-sustainability. So our carpenter shop makes all of our beds, makes all of our cribs, makes all of our wardrobes, anything made of wood we make on the farm we have a mechanic shop. Bush mechanics are well known in Africa and they are not very well trained and they're as likely to steal something from your car that's new than while they're repairing something that's broken. So we have our own mechanic shop and it's really cool actually because we've had this mechanic shop for a number of years. Rotary International has been a partner of ours for a number of years and we recently received a Rotary grant for $155,000 to buy all the tools and equipment we need to completely outfit a full mechanic shop where we're going to be able to teach, educate, train, people will be able to get certificates, and they will be qualified mechanics. What we don't have is the building. So we still have to raise $300,000 for the building. But someone asked me recently, well, how do you know what God wants you to do next? You know, how do you hear from Him? And we said, well, the Rotarians came to us and they said, you know, this is something we're interested in. And so we wrote up the list, we wrote the proposal and they gave us $155,000 for tools. So we believe wholeheartedly that the Lord will send us the $300,000 to build the building. Cuz of course he will. He gave us a million dollars to build, you know, to buy the land. So education as well. So that so the training in carpentry, the training in mechanics, the training on the on the farm is sort of the adult side, but we also build our own schools. We have by far, and I'm biased, but we have the best schools on the continent of Africa. And because our children, the oldest is 11, and she came to us quite late. So she's, our oldest are in fourth grade. And so next year, school year starts in January. So next year we need to build grade five. And then the next year we need to build sixth grade and then seventh grade. So we don't need to build a high school right now. But what we do know, because we are planners, And God has given us the plan. We can look at it. I know that my two oldest children, Rose and Gabriel, who are twins, one of 14 sets of twins, will graduate from high school in 2029. Because I can do the math. I can count on my fingers, right? Grade five, grade six, grade seven. So we started in 2009. And in 20 years, 2029, we have our first graduating class. Our first child arrived on March 1st, 2012. And of course, his name was Joshua because he was coming to Canaan. So we had to have a Joshua. He had to be the first one. So education is really important to us. Because we get about 40 children every year placed with us through social welfare, we have to have two classes for each grade because we don't want to put 40 kids in a class. So when we're building sixth grade, it's actually two sixth grade classrooms so that we can have 20 and 20. But we have kids from the local golf course. There's a golf estate five miles down the road and because we have the best private school on the continent they pay to send their kids to school with our kids so it's really awesome because we generate right now up to 4th grade about 18,000 US dollars a year in school fees which helps offset our teachers so it's also providing a service but also generating income and as we as the kids get older we'll be able to have and we have more grades we'll be able to generate more income from more more kids so that's the hope it's kind of fun
0: What an incredible picture of sustainability and empowerment in the local community. I mean, you guys have really done everything full circle, and and that's an incredible model. You know, we've spoken to a lot of organizations and, and know of a lot of organizations that aim to solve one problem and to do that well and to be effective at solving that one problem. And you guys are really taking a totally different approach and picked a specific people group in a region and are aiming to address every... Major problem, really, that that specific people group has encountered, and I'd love to hear about kind of how you guys came to that approach, and you know how effective you have seen that approach.
2: Well, it's it's holistic. It's you know we can be out feeding people in the at a church. Let's say it was just hunger, and let's say we were just growing food. Well, then you deliver the food out to the church community, and you see that the pregnant thirteen-year-old. And she got pregnant because she was having sex for food. Well, what does she do with that baby? And that baby's suffering. And now she can't go to school because she's caring for the baby. What if we could help the baby? We still can feed her so she can go back to school, but we can care for that child. Then that's the O. Okay, well then if you have the O, then you have to have education because you can't bring orphans in without having the school. So if you have school, then you're gonna to have to employ people. If you're gonna employ people, and if you're gonna if you're gonna generate have a farm and you're gonna care for orphans, you have to be able to pay for them somehow. So, that's the poverty piece. So, we have to be able to employ people. And because it's ever-growing, we're going to have to employ a lot of people in order to do all of these things. So, it's kind of a cycle. It's, mm-hmm. it's the cycle of poverty that is, we're circling. And there's a lot of things that we don't do. In my my book, Hopeless Here, I talk about, there's a chapter called Focus or Fail. And so, we are laser-focused on those four areas. But, you know, water, lots of people come to us and say, well, you really should be putting water out in the community. You know, they they need water. We don't do that. But there are lots of organizations that do water. So if you have a heart for water, you and I can direct people to water solutions. That's not what we do. But we had to raise $850,000 to bring water security to us because we don't have a river. But there's water at the top of our mountain. So we had a lot of people who were negative to us about that, you know, why are we raising all this money to bring water just down so you have water security when there's a drought across the whole country? But for us, it's like putting the oxygen mask, you know, on the airplane. If we can get water for us, then we are in a better position to help the rest of the community. Because if we have water security, we can actually grow food and deliver it to communities that even if they had water, they wouldn't be able to grow food because of the the size of the drought. So it's a lot, I'm not going to lie, It's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. But we, again, we felt that this is, the Lord laid it out. And because I guess because we're marketers as well, when we got the H-O-P-E acronym and saw what that looked like, it also kind of made sense. Mm -hmm. And so we, even within those four pillars, we have to be very careful not to be pulled off into other areas because it's very, very easy for very well-intended people and very wealthy people to come in and say, hey, I'll give you Half a million dollars if you do this, but we don't do that. And that's called mission drift. And we don't want to drift away from the mission God has given us. And that money could be very well used by someone who is actually God is calling to focus in that area.
1: Well, it seems that you have an incredibly well thought model that you've created on how to solve so many different issues. Do you see that as something that could be replicated, or do you have any plans to? partner with someone to do something similar in another area.
2: Well, you use the word solve. We're not solving anything. It might look like it. Yes, we're solution based, but you know, at the end of the day it's not our problem to solve either. It's our responsibility to serve. So as soon as we think we're solving something, I think that might head back down the ego path again. I hear what you're saying though. Part of the reason I wrote Hope Lives Here was to answer some of those questions. So if, if you have a friend who is starting an orphanage somewhere or they want to start a farm or they want to start a dairy. I tried to, I've woven stories through the book, but I've tried to also make it a bit of a how-to. So if if you read it, Cody, and you say, oh, I have a friend who was just talking about starting an aquaponics project, you can buy the book, put a post-it note on that chapter and they can read it. And I've tried to say, you know, this is the way we did it. I would never do this again. I would absolutely do this again. You know, when I was writing the book, I said to Ian, what is the one thing that you would tell people if they were going to do something like this, you know, other than, you know, don't do it unless God has specifically told you to, but he said, buy a dozer. (laughs) That's what he'd do first is buy a dozer because you're going to clear a lot of land. But so we've tried to, we're not looking for anyone right now. I don't think we're in a position for that yet, but we are certainly trying to, to create this so that it is replicable. I think that Project Canaan will become a training center. We have a couple of organizations, a couple of foundations, actually, who are very interested in helping us create a training materials, make it a training center, which is also generates income for us. So that people can come from Honduras or Guatemala and come and see what we're doing. So there, are, there are people having those
0: conversations,
2: and the Lord hasn't told us to do that yet. He's just told us to keep going, doing what we're doing, but it would be seem quite logical.
0: Well, what an incredible story and incredible work that you guys are doing, Janine. We're so excited to hear about this kind of a model and the effectiveness and sustainability that you guys have achieved and are very excited to see what might come in the next five or 10 years through all the work you guys are doing. I know that you have your book out now, Hope Lives Here. Can you just tell people a little bit about where they might find that and what they might find in there?
2: Sure. It should be on Amazon by September the 9th. I'm not sure when this podcast will be aired, but Amazon should have it that, you know, the world has supply chain problems and we also have supply chain problems. But right now you can get it through kutsala.com, which is K-H-U-T-S-A-L-A.com. That is our website where we sell all of our handmade goods and we have pre-printed some. So it's available there. And, you know, get a couple because you'll it's, it's a book that you'll want to share. And one of the things that I tell people, because the first chapter is really hard. The first chapter, you start off with a, a young girl dumping her baby into a pit latrine. And not everybody wants to start reading a book there. So if you've read it and you know someone who's interested in education or interested in poverty, you know, maybe just put a post-it note, as I said before, on that chapter and have them start there. And maybe they'll work their way back. But I do, at the beginning of the book, give an introduction and explain where we started. So I kind of give a synopsis from book number one and number two. So it starts at where we were in Toronto, what happened in 9-11, my adoption, and then moves into what we're doing now.
0: Awesome. And I encourage everybody to go check that out if you get a chance. I think there's a lot of wisdom in there to share.
1: So if people wanted to learn more about Project Canaan or Hope for Africa, or I know you mentioned you've hosted people on trips before, Where can people learn more and get more involved?
2: We are really, I think we're great on social media. That's the part of the job that we have a little bit of experience in. So they can go to our website, heartforafrica.com. If you happen to have Canadians, we have a heartforafrica.ca. We are on Facebook. We are on Instagram. They can follow me. We have a lot of content, as you can imagine, whether it's a new baby being found or a cow gave birth or a chicken escaped or You know, there are some snakes and things like that. So we post a lot of content so they can follow along and see that those kind of things every single day. We do typically have trips, although they're canceled right now, COVID, border crossings, and some civil unrest, but we anticipate July 2022 having our first big reunion trip. And we do tend to have larger trips. There'll probably be about a 100 people on that trip, but they are broken down into groups of seven, so it becomes a very small unit. They get to see all of the project. They get to go to our church feeding program. They get to go out and visit some of our neighbors. And because we haven't had visitors in about a year and a half at this point, Everyone is ready to welcome visitors to come back and see them and just let them know that God hasn't forgotten them, that he still cares for them, and people are still thinking about them from all over the world.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, Janine, as we get to the end of our show here, you know, every episode we end with our manager minute, and we spend all this time talking about the idea that all the wealth that passes through our hands is God's, has always been God's, and always will be, and we are really just managers on his behalf of that wealth. And so we like to take this moment at the end of the show to talk about how we might best manage whatever wealth comes through our hands. And when we have guests on the show, we like to give them a chance to share an idea of their own. So do you have any suggestions for how our listeners might do that?
2: Well, I I think I just want to underscore what you said and maybe just a different voice. It is all his money. It's not like, yeah, I think sometimes Christians think, you know, I tithe and I gift and the rest is mine. And it isn't. It's all his money. And that's really that's great that you're tithing. It's great that you're gifting, because that's what we we're instructed to do. But it's all his. And I think about the man who gave us that check for a million dollars, which didn't make any sense, but God told him to do it. And what a blessing that he would have received for doing that in the most unusual time. And what has come out of that, the lives that have been saved that come out of that. But it's all his. And you know, if it wasn't him, I believe it would have been someone else. Mm -hmm. People often say to me, you know, Janine, if you and Ian hadn't done what you're doing, all those children would be dead. And I don't think that's true. I don't think that's how God works. I think that someone else would have got the blessing of rescuing that child. Someone else would have the blessing of celebrating their 10th birthday or their second birthday. Someone else would have the blessing of sitting and praying over that child and watching them be loved back to life. I would have missed out on the blessing. And that terrifies me. That terrifies me that if I had said no... I want to stick with what I know, stick with my business, continue to tithe and gift, I would have missed out on a lifetime of blessing. It's terrifying. And I'm so glad that I said yes.
0: I don't think I could have said that better myself. Well, Janine, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your life and your experiences with us. This has been a huge blessing for us.
2: And I really mean that. (laughs) I really mean it. I hope that people won't miss the blessing that's waiting for them because they think that the money is theirs. That would be tragic.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Instagram at Pledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Send us any questions you have, and we'll answer them on one of our future episodes. Even better, join the conversation on the Finish Line Forums. There you can discuss your thoughts about recent episodes, read stories of generosity, and ask questions about setting a financial finish line. Check it out at finishlinepledge.com forum. Finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com episode 29. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time.